welcome to C-Sessions. Our mission is to improve communication on both sides of the stethoscope for healthcare. Today, my guest, the esteemed Lisette Bigelow from the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center here in Seattle. Thank, Thank you, Randy. Randy. Where she is the community health educator for urban populations. And joining Lisette is Michael Lilly. He's with Decifera Pharmaceutical, and he is the territory manager here in the Northwest. Thank you both for being here. Lizette, in her function and her job at the Fred Hutch, she's responsible in our community to get out and talk about disparities throughout the region, cancer care disparities to be exact. Lizette, with that in mind, what would be helpful is for you to give us a broad stroke idea. What does your job kind of consist of on a daily basis? Well, thank you so much, Randy. It depends, really. The main goal of my job is to find out who my community is, who is having these health disparities and why. Then I try to form partnerships, either with community leaders, with community-based organizations, people that know their community, experts in what are the barriers and facilitators towards good, positive health outcomes, specifically in cancer. So then I try to form a relationship with those community leaders, with those organizers. But I have to be really careful because I still have to acknowledge my privilege. I am a community health educator for a cancer research institute, such as the Fred Hutch. I am Latina. I am cisgendered. I am educated. I know both Spanish and English languages. However, I cannot use my own personal experience to say, Yes, I understand what you're going through. Me, personally, I still have so much to learn. My experience does not mean it equates to the disparities among our current refugee communities, our different Latinx communities, our African-American, indigenous. And when I say indigenous, I want to say everyone referred to our Native Alaskan, American Indian communities, our LGBTQ communities, our rural communities. So it's, it's building that relationship. And I'm going to go out on a limb in your role mm-hmm. and based upon the purpose that this aspect of your Fred Hutch organization exists. These disparities between these ethnicities, these sexes, the races, they're fairly significant, are they not, compared to somebody that's, say, let's being treated in an academia cancer center here in downtown Seattle? Very much. And I'm going to guess that it's not as good. Is that a safe assumption? That's a very safe assumption. Okay. And actually, when the... Fred Hutch helped establish the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement, which is where I work under. They also did a community health needs assessment in which they took a look of what the cancer incidence and mortality rates are among our catchment area, which in this case is a 13-county catchment area, which is west of the Cascade Mountains, south of the Canadian border, and north of Lewis County. The top five cancer incidences with just within this cancer catchment area alone were breast, prostate, lung, hematologic, and colon. Among the top five cancer mortality, it's lung, prostate, breast, hematological, and colorectal. My guess is that people of color or Hispanic, these people are higher instances. And that's where I was kind of going towards. Lung cancer has high incidence in non-Hispanic, black, and indigenous populations but low in Asian and Hispanic. High lung cancer mortality rates among indigenous and non-Hispanic black. Non-Hispanic white women have high breast cancer incidence rates, 
but mortality is highest in indigenous and non-Hispanic black women. More, within colorectal cancer, there's high incidence in mortality rates among indigenous and non-Hispanic black uh, community than Hispanics or Asians. With that, and you're talking specifically right now about cancers, we have this new disease called COVID. Mm. Where's this fitting in with this outreach? I'm going to guess, especially in the Hispanic, they work in a lot of must-do jobs, so they don't have the privilege to be staying at home. Exactly. Are there increases? Are you seeing worse situations there as well? Within our communities of color, especially our African-American communities and our Latinx communities. I interchange a lot between Latino and Latinx, but please know that I'm referring to those of Latin American descent. Mm -hmm. We have some of the most difficult COVID outcomes because we have higher rates within diabetes, heart disease, lung problems, any type of chronic disease. On top of that, a lot of our communities of color are having essential jobs, but they don't have the luxury of working from home, of perhaps having that capacity to have those type of sick times, or even if they are working out, how are their employers really protecting their employees? Let alone uh, for Hispanic communities who unfortunately may not have proper documentation status, and when I mean non-resident or non-citizen, can they claim or can they come out and say, like, my job is not properly protecting me out of fear? Those are just some aspects. I'm not saying that they're all, but those are some commonalities that we're starting to see. Got it. How do you do this community outreach? Pre-COVID, a lot of our work came in just finding out where the community is gathering. And that's key because when you're trying to build that trust with the community, you have to meet them where they are. And if they're already organized, like one great example is the Latinx Health Board or the Somali Health Board. They're just a great example. They hosted quarterly meetings and that was open to the public. So those are the types of gatherings that as a community health educator, you're looking for because they are already gathering, but it's a place where you can just listen. And that's key for all of our community health education positions within our team. Listen to what the community is saying first because that's where you'll get a lot more insights into why the data is the way it is. You're partnering with organizations. Give me an example of some of these partnerships that they might look like. One that I'd like to talk about a lot is this online platform called For the Breast of Us. And it was started by two African-American goddesses, Marissa Thomas and Jasmine Soares, who were diagnosed at a very young age for breast cancer. And as you know, the common conception that women with breast cancer are cis white women, the age of like say 40 and above. Oh yes, let's, let's pay attention to this. But for women of color, especially at a younger age, their diagnosis wasn't taken as seriously. So there wasn't that much information. So they started their own online platform to support women like them. <laughs> so we took that opportunity to partner with them and say like, hey, we want to help grow your efforts. How can we do that? And that's key. You ask the community, how can we help you versus I know what's going on. I think this is going to be a great avenue. Let's go ahead and try this. I like that. So you get a synergistic effect off that. I mean, Absolutely. And, and so Michael's here. He's with one of the industry pharmaceuticals. And I'm just curious, do you partner with pharmaceuticals ever in any of these outreaches and things that you go out into the community? Sometimes. It may not be like as a direct like, hey, Michael, I have somebody that would be a great trial person for you. It may not be that way. But it's sometimes we, we bump into each other at, say, health fairs okay. or other conferences. And we just talk what we see in our community. And then they also say, like, well, there's a program. And then it's just kind of like, well, let's talk. Let's just see how we can collaborate. It it's a great sharing of information. And I think that's, I've known you for about 15 months now, right? A little so, bit, yeah. I think we've got some great information that has helped me. I cover 
five states right now. I've seen it all. One of the, the interesting things that we're working on right now is the communities and how can we reach and bring the message out and obviously collaborate with the SCCA and some of the other academics in the yes. area. And Michael, D. Cypher, you what what is your primary focus as far as what, do you have a specific cancer that you're working on? Currently we are in GIST, which is gastrointestinal stromal tumors. Very rare, probably affects 6,000 patients a year. So there's a lot of education that I do on that and bringing that to the forefront and educating not just the doctors, but the staff as well. I think we're going to take a quick little break here. When we come back, we are going to talk about clinical trials because these are high on people's lists these days, especially when you hear about it on the news, just about every 30 seconds of vaccines coming out for the COVID. And I want to talk about clinical trials. For those of you that are not quite familiar with clinical trials, I happened to be on one when I was first diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer about 12 years ago. And I remember my doctor coming up to me and saying, you know, you're a prime candidate to go on a clinical trial. And at the time, I didn't know a clinical trial from a bar of soap. I asked him, what is a clinical trial? And he says, well, it's basically tomorrow's treatment today. I said, okay, but it's not proven, correct? He goes, exactly. And I said, and so why would I want to do that? And he says, because I think you're a prime candidate based upon your disease, where you're at, how old you are, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, well, if I was your daughter, what would you do? He says, I would put you on this clinical trial. So there, that's all he had to tell me. I went on it. It did not cure me, but it didn't kill me. With that, Lizette, let's start with you because I'd like to hear what's going on. I mean, my understanding, again, very few people actually, a percentage of cancer patients actually go on a clinical trial, especially mm-hmm. in rural America. Mm-hmm. I think I heard the, it's around 3 to 5% is the, is the number. And if I recall my doctor at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance saying that they had approximately 15% people going on clinical trials, three to five times as many at academia versus going out in rural America. What's your experience? I mean, what, what do you see in the discrepancies that are taking place with clinical trials? Well, a little bit of backstory. A lot of the times when it comes to clinical trials, there is a misconception that clinical trials is more of a last resort. When I used to work at the Cancer Information Service as part of the National Cancer Institute, I would get calls I would say, I tried everything, or I wanted to look at clinical trials. Sometimes they would call like when they were at either stage four and stage, you name it. What we need to make the public aware is that clinical trials is always an option no matter at what stage of the diagnosis. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be a drug that, yes, it may be experimental, but it's not just, you're not going to get a placebo. When a placebo just means, you know, what, that's a sugar pill. Right. Nowadays, we need to be more clear about, like, even if you are put on the non-experimental drug group, it means that you're going to be put on, say, placebo plus what the conventional treatment would be for a person with your type of cancer and your type of stage of cancer. Another thing is whether the facility has access or is housing clinical trials within their hospital clinic. That's a lot more common in academic centers like Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, Fred Hudge. But if it's out in rural America, it may be that they don't have that option. They have a clinic, that's great. But the lack of options is scarce. So when you don't have that available in rural America, you may not have that information. So people may not think, oh, wow, this is an option for me too. And let me ask you this, and Michael, maybe you can chime in on this, because I'm going to guess, quote unquote, in rural America, you're not going to have as many specialist oncologists. You're going to have general oncologists at these community hospitals 
they're probably not even aware of what clinical trial for the specific cancer that might be available. Their lack of education and information, fair to say. And Michael, what is your experience? Well, you know, that's interesting. I come from the genetic side. So we're looking at breaking down disease states at a genetic level. And sometimes we'll come up with some very rare genetics. And when you're covering large areas and you have these rural outline areas, you might come across a certain genetic mutation that is, is not very frequent. I know in the past we've done the ability to try to bring the trials, if we can, to those urban areas. And I think I've said in the past is that don't let your zip code dictate your health care. Mm-hmm. or your cancer care. And they have a few companies out there that will do these, what I would call just-in-time trials. So they will help set up, and I guess maybe this is something we should talk about. I think so. Uh, as well, <laughs> and, and get out there and help these offices in these rural settings set up for these trials at their office. So it will save time, especially if you're talking to late-stage cancers. Patients don't want to travel. It can be a burden. The cost can be a burden uh, on both sides. So I think that's, I don't hear as much about that lately, but it is something that is being brought to the forefront right now, a little more noise. And I want to add to that too, is that even though they are rural, it doesn't mean that they have a lack of education. It could also mean that they're also understaffed. Yeah, we went, We really want to be careful because they're they are in rural, but it's a small staff right. for their large population. So it may not be that they don't have the staff to look for that option for you, but that's kind of why as an Office of Community Outreach and Engagement, that's why we have a community health educator specifically for rural populations to help bring that information. And that's kind of our job as an Office of Community Outreach and Engagement. What sources of information do we have here that we need to take more outward? With as many new drugs that are coming down the pipeline, if you are a general oncologist just working out, like you say, with a very limited staff, it would be impossible to stay up to speed on everything that's out there and available. It's funny that you asked that question, actually. I was talking to a doctor recently that will rename nameless, and I said, how do you keep up on this? Every day, you know, I get these alerts that are completely changing, new indications, new drugs. And he said, you know, Mike, I actually have to take uh, a few minutes uh, during my examination, leave the room, and I will actually Google. I will use Google to make sure that I'm not missing that. And I kind of like that, that he was that truthful with me, that he said, Mm. you know, I... We just don't have the ability. Things are changing so fast. Right. We're in a very unique environment right now, and it's almost at the speed of light. I was kind of actually relieved to hear that he went that route. See, if a lot more professionals or a lot more medical providers would have honest conversations like that, I think that would also help create more safer spaces for Absolutely. patients to also disclose <clears throat> some things that they may also be of concern. And it could just be like a great talk or a great way to just open that conversation together. So along that vein, let me ask you this. So if, when you're out speaking to the community. Do you ever get involved in any kind of teledocking or anything along those lines for anybody to talk to the doctors about getting second opinions from academia cancer centers for their patients or anything along those lines? We want to give information that is relevant not only to the geography area, but that is culturally relevant to the communities that are being highly affected by this. So in a manner where they can understand it and how do they bring this up to their doctor? I think that's key here. Like how do we translate all of this cancer medical terminology to our Latinx communities, to our rural populations, to our indigenous population, our African-American populations. It's not just about language. It's about context as well. Right. I've referred quite okay. a few people that I know that are out in rural America mm-hmm. to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And they have strictly, all they've done is get on the phone and they'll, they'll get their records transferred over. My doctor worked with a friend of mine in South Dakota and he looked over his chart and he goes, you are a prime candidate for this clinical trial. He went on it. He talked to his oncologist in South Dakota. This oncologist agreed. He lived five years. That's he awesome. got five years. Unfortunately, last, he, we lost him last year. Hmm. 
but he got five very good years. So I'm just, again, trying to look at it from an educational standpoint to help get more information. There's more studies going on in the academia centers to help support the rural settings. What's going to be key here is assuring that just because they're in a rural setting, it doesn't mean that they don't have quality care as well. Okay. And something that I like to inform the public about is free options where they can look up this information. There's the American College of Surgeons where they have a database of cancer programs or health centers that are accredited by the Commission on Cancer. And everybody has access on that. And they can look up hospitals near them and they can see like their hospital, even though it's in rural, but it's still near them, still has that cancer accreditation. It doesn't mean that that's not their only option. They can also look up in the National Cancer Institute for NCI and the National Cancer Institute designated cancer centers. And they can see which ones are in their state that they can also get a second opinion from. Another thing that I want to add is that when your provider gives you that opinion, it's because they may have also gotten opinions from other colleagues as well. So while you're also getting a second opinion as a patient, they may also be giving you an opinion based on third, fourth, fifth opinions from other colleagues who have experienced similar diagnosis with you know different type of patients. We've got a, just a few minutes left. How do we, I mean, I know this is your full-time job, so I'm not throwing any stones. No worries. How are we improving this process? What is the holy grail? How can we raise the bar? So I can tell you what we as an Office of Community Outreach and Engagement are doing. And it's more of a community-based participatory approach. And there's more than just you at Fred Hutchins. Yes, yes. And I want to give a shout out to my team because it is just (laughs) not me. We have a health educator for African-American populations. His name is Dante Moorhead. For rural populations, Dylan Van Brinsburg. Indigenous populations, Craig D. And they are an awesome team that I am just honored to work with. And we each have our own experiences, but we're each just making sure that we meet the community where they are, talking to them and give us more information about why is it that we're having these disparities. But also it's like, okay, you have all these disparities. What do you want to work on? What do you want to convey to our clinical researchers? And it's awesome because even at our department, we have a community action board that's formed by different community-based organizations that work with different types of communities especially BIPOC communities. And that's a great space where we connect the community to researchers at the Hutch and say, hey, this is a place where you guys can talk, go at it. And that's where researchers got information about how to better approach within COVID studies, how to better approach in terms of cancer clinical trials or just cancer information. So that's one way in which we are just trying to find various ways that could help. Michael, anything from your side? I want to just add on why we're throwing out websites to take a look at regarding clinical trials. And I think one that I like to take a look at sometimes is clinicaltrials.gov. And these are clinical trials, a database, privately and publicly funded clinical trials. And these are trials around the world. So not just something in our backyard, but as well as the world. So I think that's something to take a look at too. Yeah, I guess there are people outside the United States that get cancer too. There there are. It's Yes, absolutely. Throw that out there. Okay. Thank you. Well, we are getting wrapped up here, folks. And so I just want to close this out. I want to thank both Michael, Lizette, for obviously making the trek into the studio here today. Thank, thank you, Randy. Randy. And thank you. I, I have <laughs> had the you. privilege to work with Fred Hutch for quite a few years. And they do, in my opinion, fantastic work. I can't say enough good things about them. And they are a nonprofit. And they are always needing money to help do more. So if you want to help... From the outside, 
You can go online, go to the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. There's another way you can support Office of Community Outreach mm. Efforts and say we have a personal protective equipment drive that is that supports buying PPE equipment for indigenous tribes who are fighting COVID-19 right now. Fantastic. Thank you very much.